Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Steve, Paul, welcome back. Good to be back. Good to be back. It's been a long time. <laughs> pleasure to have you. It has indeed. It's been about a month. A pleasure to have you back uh, talking about... Well, it went by like nothing, I'm telling Hudsucker's you. Hudsucker's proxy. Uh, and we're going to be discussing Hudsucker's proxy in relation to supply and demand, which I suppose we should have covered much earlier on in the Econ Pop series because it is such a fundamental element of economics. Uh, you, you guys, uh, being e- economists, uh, I'm, I myself am merely a humorist who kind of understands economics. You, you guys are actually property economists. My understanding is that there are really only three things that economists agree on, and that's that uh, the theory of competitive uh, comparative advantage that some places are going to make you know better widgets than other places, and you should specialize in what you want to do rather than have tariffs. Um, everybody seems to agree on that at this point. Um, that stadiums are universally bad public investments, uh, <laughs> and finally that supply and demand is this bedrock feature of everything we understand about economics. Uh, and so I'm I'm glad that we're hitting it up. And we're doing it through uh, Hudsucker Proxy. If anybody's listening to the, the podcast that hasn't seen the movie yet, uh, Hudsucker Proxy is uh, a, a fun film. I think it's probably in the 80s, although there wasn't any unnecessary nudity, so it might have been in the 90s. Uh, but it's about it this. Nine. Was it 90s? Yeah, so I think so. 94, it, it, I think. 99. Past the full frontal 94. window that, that is 82. To- no, I'm very disappointed <laughs> in that because I have this thing for Jennifer Jason Lee, and I was hoping, but no, we didn't. <laughs> Sadly, no. You'll have to, you'll have to no. drag her down elsewhere. Uh, well, it's the story about this uh, uh, young man fresh off the train from the middle of nowhere who comes to New York, very, very nice, bright, uh, idealistic man who ends up triumphing in a city of otherwise angry, belligerent people. Uh, so this, naturally hailing from Oklahoma and living in New York, I, I appreciated some of the, the, the cultural uh, elements that were put into this. Um, my, my opening thoughts were that if, if you watch this film, this is pretty much exactly how I thought corporate work was when I was 12. There's lots of you know banging typewriters and guys in green visors and things like that, but it, it fails to capture the soul-crushing rote elements of corporate America. Uh, but anyway, the, the main thing I wanted to talk about was um, supply and demand. Um, that being, I, I think, well illustrated in one of the films in here, or one, one of the uh, scenes in the film. Um, Paul, can you can you run us through just the basic what is supply and demand? Well, the notion is that uh, you arrive at a price uh, by these two factors of supply and demand. That uh, if there's a uh, uh, great demand for an item and uh, its supply is limited, its price is going to go up. Similarly, if there's uh, so-so demand but there's a lot of supply, the price is going to go down. And these two things are adjusted by the fact that as the price goes up, uh, there'll be more and more supply because it becomes uh, uh, worthwhile for people to produce more of the item. Uh, and uh, similarly, if the demand goes down and the price goes down, people will start diverting into other areas of creating uh, a supply. So it's the fundamental principle of how markets adjust and how the price system uh, sees that the things that people really want are actually what are delivered in the marketplace. Yeah. And the, and the, and the, and the, the 
is the role the, that prices play and, and it's Paul said in sort of signaling to us how scarce, how valuable goods are. And so as supply as the supply of the good, demand of the good move around, prices change and that provides information and incentives to both suppliers and demanders about how to use resources. So as we as we see as you know, if, if supply is, is reduced and price goes up, demanders both know that potential buyers both know that this good is now more valuable um, so they have that information but they also comes with an incentive for them to look for substitutes to cut back on their use of that good to, to, to economize on it as that price goes up and so one of the things the ways I like to put it is that prices are our knowledge wrapped in an incentive right it comes with both of those things and when prices change it provides us with knowledge but it also provides us with an incentive to make the appropriate adjustments in the face of the, that, that change in price. Um, that's a, a wonderful way of expressing that to both of you, and I appreciate that because uh, one of the, the sort of elementary questions that I had when I first learned about the concept of supply and demand was, well, you know, isn't it sort of greedy to increase the, the price of the good you have because more people want it? What's to stop, um, you know, if, if I've got, say, a, a, a generator or a kite or a hula hoop or whatever, um, and 30 people want it, why should I suddenly jack up the price? That seems kind of exploitative. But in the explanation that you've proffered, the, the next logical step would be, well, um, other people are going to get into the business once I've done that because they'll see how um, how much wealth they can earn by building a comparable product, and then they'll expand the base, and that'll actually drop the price eventually. Yeah, and in the short run, importantly, before that happens, what by raising the price, when you have all that demand for it, right, when, when that demand's there, what, what you're saying is we're going to make sure that the people who believe they have the most valuable use for that resource are the ones who get it because they're the ones who are going to be willing to pay the higher price. So one of the things that prices do is to help ensure that the people who really are willing to pay for the resource are the ones who at least believe they you know we, we don't know but who believe anyway they have an extremely valuable use for it so just as an example when we look at you know after a natural disaster um, and, and people start selling ice at a very high price right what that does is it at least tries to make sure that the people who are willing to buy the ice are the ones who need it say to keep their medication cold and not someone who wants to keep his you know his beer on ice, right? While 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 you know someone else is dying because their medication isn't cool. So we we at least you know uh, it better be really good beer anyway. It's true, and, and if if you were to artificially restrict the market and say that you you couldn't, I mean, w whenever there is a natural right. disaster, right. there's always immediately a response of people that are decrying uh, businessmen or or local entities or whatever of uh, um, uh, being uh, exploitative of the situation. Price gouging. That's the term yeah. we're looking for. Thank you. Price gouging. Price um, and yeah, the, the beer versus, say, like medication thing is a good point because if we institute a law and say you cannot raise the price of ice, it has to stay a dollar a pound or whatever, um, yep. then really whoever gets there first is going to benefit from that, which yep. means that the guy that wants to have a really fun party during the snowstorm might buy all the ice for a dollar. Yep. Uh, yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so when, when you interfere with that supply and demand, your other option is basically just uh, hoarding, I suppose, right? Yep. Um, well, the market price is the best form of rationing uh, ever thought of. Uh, another important point, though, is to remember everything occurs on the margin. We're not talking about the whole supply of a good. We're talking about the least valuable uh, 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 unit of it. Uh, that's the one that's going to be uh, bought up. Uh, so uh, that's why we have this adjustment, because things occur on the margin. This is the whole issue of marginal utility. Real quick, because, and I agree with both of you, but to, to play devil's advocate with, say, like a, a snowstorm example uh, where, where price gouging is occurring, 
what if what if I'm just I happen to be exorbitantly wealthy and I want beer and ice um, as opposed to the person that's kind of poor that's got uh, medication they need? Doesn't that kind of throw the system out of whack? Not necessarily. Well, I mean, what? Go ahead, Paul. Remember, uh, you may have all this money, but will you still want to spend it on ice? Uh, you have hundreds of things you could be spending the money on. You're not frivolously going to say, well, I'll spend a million dollars on a block of ice because I have a million dollars. You'll be thinking all the other things you could do with that million dollars uh, so that uh, it's, it's, it's the intensity of your demand uh, that's an issue here. Uh, and so the person who needs it to stay alive uh, is going to bid more money for it than someone who's just uh, thinking of using it for cooling off. And if they can't, if they can't, the problem isn't that prices went up. The problem is that the person's poor, right? I mean, the, ultimately, it, it's 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 you know, poor people who have limited resources just can't acquire as much stuff as people who have more resources. And and putting you know, putting two things to consider, putting a a cap on that price doesn't change that fact. But to go back to a point that you made earlier, Andrew, if you put the cap on that price, right? If you if you say the price can't go above X, okay, you undermine that longer run incentive to attract new sources of supply. Ah, so if, if I'm a Letting local businessman, I'm up, not going to go over to a neighboring state, get some ice, and come back because it's only a dollar. Exactly, Why would it be worth it right. to me? Exactly. If you let it go up, that at least creates, as my friend Art Carden calls it, the signal flare, right? Like a big signal flare goes up, and everyone sees that it's eight dollars a bag or whatever, and people start coming in with new supplies of ice, which brings both more ice and, of course, that increased supply drives down the price back down again. So you want you want that signaling mechanism to 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 to, to happen. Uh, so what what other examples are there of government interfering with supply and demand? <laughs> we only have 20 minutes. How, how, how about minutes what, what are the most common and most egregious examples that you can think of? Rent control, rent control, agricultural subsidies, minimum wage off the top of my head. Actually, right? I think that that's a great example. We can key off the minimum wage, uh, Steve, because there's a, at the very beginning of the film, when the main character arrives in New York, he, uh, he's standing in front of an employment window and it's scrolling all these different jobs and every single one of them says needs experience needs experience and it really drives this home needs experience uh, and um, I, I, I can recall going through lots of job listings and having that same thought that this is a paradox how can I have a experience for a, 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 an entry-level position um, so I sympathize with that character in that um, and we're, when we're dealing with labor labor too is subject to supply and demand and minimum wage is a great example of Messing with that natural um, natural resting point of the cost of labor, and the the response tends to be in favor of minimum wage tends to be that well you're you're miserly and evil why don't you want to give a raise to the the poorest people in America you, you seem like an awful person um, and the response is well no business is going to pay more than it's worth them for that labor so if 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 yep. I'm if I'm getting you know, if, if it's worth if, if I'm only making a profit to have somebody sweep the floors at seven dollars an hour. If, if it's no longer profitable, I'm not going to hire anybody at that point, which means that you're going to put a lot of people out of business. Some people are going to benefit, but the people at the very, very bottom, the people that have the least amount of skills and resources who need our, our most help right. from society, aren't going to be able to break into the system at all. Yeah. Minimum wage laws are minimum productivity laws. I mean, that's the problem with, 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 with the way it's usually framed, is we talk in terms of, well, this law prevents employers from paying less than X. The reality is, is what the law does is it makes it illegal for employers to hire anyone who, whose productivity is less than X. Or put the other way, it makes it illegal for people whose productivity is below that minimum wage to get a job. 
So it's, you know, let, let's be honest about what's really happening here, which is we're basically saying if you can't produce that much, you can't legally be employed because, as you said, no one's going to hire you if, if you, you know, if, if they're not, if they're not, if you're not producing it, you know, a little bit more than what they're paying you. Mm -hmm. And and I should note, of course, that the the impact of minimum wage by falling on the least skilled workers has, uh, uh, you know, racially disproportionate outcomes. It tends to affect uh, non-whites much more than whites, young people more than older people, um, th those with the least skills for historical discrimination, whatever the reason, you know, poor educational systems get hurt the worst by minimum wage. And historically, people, you know, going back a hundred years, progressive era, so forth, people supported minimum wage laws for racist reasons. They understood the law correctly, right, the effects of the law, and they liked whites like minimum wage laws precisely because they closed uh, uh, non-white and immigrant workers out of the labor market. That's why they were, you know, so popular in the eugenicist crowd, for example, because they were a way of, of, of filtering out the weaker workers who happened to be so shockingly non-white. Fascinating and chilling. I did not know that. Uh, that that is. Yeah. In fact, if you, you know, make it make it worse, the the um, South African Nationalist Party, when they instituted, uh, you know, the uh, the first apartheid laws a hundred years ago, included as part of that what was known as rate for the work, which is essentially a minimum wage law, because they knew it would shut. The, the native African work, black African workers out of the labor market, so it was built into apartheid. Uh, th this kind of this kind of it's a very interesting question. You know, our our, our progressive friends these days love minimum wage laws, um, but often are unaware of that history. And and it's an interesting question what they do when they're confronted. Well, and then I guess the modern. And I'm not claiming that they're racist. I don't I don't mean to put this onus on them. But yeah. with uh, with Walmart, Walmart is oftentimes, as I understand it, supportive of minimum wage laws, and, and yeah. that should make liberals very much pause and stop and think. Is is Walmart wanting to raise minimum wage because they've become extremely altruistic and want to take a hit themselves. Walmart could, of course, just pay their workers more, so it's probably not that. Which is what they do, actually. But that's why they support minimum wage laws, because Walmart starts people above minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things Walmart would like to do is raise the minimum wage because that raises the employment cost of their mom-and-pop competition. Mm -hmm. And drives them out. Yeah, so it's precisely the fact that Walmart actually does pay. That's the real bizarre, twisted contradiction here. right? They, the, the progressives like might like the fact that Walmart wants to raise the minimum wage, but the reason Walmart wants to raise it is Walmart's own self-interest to shut out the mom and to raise the cost of mom and pop. If we wanted to make it more yeah. relatable to our aforementioned hipster demographic, um, Starbucks would theoretically probably be in favor of raising minimum wage, knowing that it would yeah. knock out all the tiny startup companies that are yeah. Um, yeah. just getting by. Hipster brew is out of business, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's why large corporations are so often in favor of government regulation because they can afford them in so many different ways that small businesses can. Absolutely. Uh, well, I, I want to go to the next example, and I'll, I'll kick it to Paul. Rent control. Uh, Paul, rent control sounds like a nice thing. You're suspending the, the laws of supply and demand and making apartments affordable for poor people. Uh, do you have any problems with that? Well, <laughs> yes. I, I bet he does. <laughs> it, it's a... It's a uh, the, the same example, is, uh, not treating rent like any other price uh, in the market, which will be determined by supply and demand. Uh, if you keep rents artificially low, it will reduce the supply of available housing. It means it won't be profitable to build new housing. It won't be profitable to improve existing housing. Again, things occur on the margin. Uh, people with marginal rental properties will drop out of the a rental market when they can't get 
a decent price for it. Uh, so, and again, you uh, don't decrease the demand, and so you end up with forms of rationing of the apartments, this business of people handing them down from one generation to another, or all these businesses of, uh, let's say, bribing someone to get an apartment that's rent controlled. Uh, uh, it's been a disaster on all these levels. Prices clear markets. That's what they're designed to do. If there aren't enough of something, it leads to more things being produced. If there's too much, it leads to less things being produced. When you mess with the price, you mess with the market clearing function of prices. And rent control is a perfect example. Uh, landlords won't keep up the properties anymore when there's less of a return on them. That's what produces slums. Yeah, no, I, I think you're saying the rent of that. Well, I think one of the ironies of this. Right? The idea behind rent control is to reduce the price so that the consumers benefit. But in fact, by, doing, by creating the shortage economy, you actually give all the power to the seller. Right? Now you have these landlords with a limited supply of, 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 of you know, apartments to rent, so they can pick and choose among all the people who'd like to rent it. So all the power in that situation goes, goes to the seller. And interestingly, going back to minimum wage, it's the reverse. Right? When you have, uh, when you have a, a, a price, what we call a price floor, where the price can't go below it, okay, like minimum wage, then all the power is on the buyer side. And so these laws that are intended to help one help the renter and the other help the worker end up giving the other guy all the power. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. You know, I, I live here in New York, and uh, we we don't have quite as brazen rent control as used to happen, where you just it was yep. you know you're only ever going to pay two hundred dollars ever for this you know high rise apartment. Uh, that that's much rarer today, but there's still. Um, there's still apartments that can only raise it by X percentage per year and that kind of thing. I think Washington, D.C. and parts of Virginia operate similarly. And uh, uh, Paul was absolutely right with it. Uh, or, or maybe, Steve, maybe I think you both brought this up, um, that if you're a landlord, um, if, if it's no longer profitable for you to run an apartment, you're very unlikely to be uh, taking care of that apartment anymore. And, and you get these slum houses that don't get fixed. Right, and you get the disputes. Right now, you're all upset as the tenant. You're all upset with the landlord for not doing the work. So you have to have these, you know, you have to have these commissions and boards that decide all these cases because you've got all these disputes. I mean, we don't see that happen in markets. Certainly not to the same degree where we don't have rent control. Right, because if the landlord doesn't do what they're supposed to do, you'll leave and get another apartment because you've got options. Right, so so you know they can't afford to mistreat their customers because there's always a you know there, there's not another one waiting in the way you have when you have a shortage economy thanks to rent. Well, so. It's the fallacy of that Moscow mayor I mentioned where we say something's too important to be left to the market. Rent is too important to be left to the market. Healthcare is too important to be left yeah. to the market. There's nothing too important to be yeah, left yeah. to the market. The market is the best system we've ever found for allocating resources. That's, uh, that's yeah. Well, when they're important, that's precisely why we need the market. On that yes. note, to go to the, the third example that was provided of, of suspending supply and demand for a market uh, is that of food. Uh, so agricultural subsidies are a huge, huge part of uh, Congress every, I think they renew it every six years. I can't remember what, what, how often the, uh, the bills come through. Uh, but they're how are they up for real life? Yes, it's <laughs> and they're, they're uh, the, the the level of, of uh, debauchery on a legislative level that comes through agricultural subsidies is astounding. Uh, for years, we've only recently fixed this, and I'm not even confident we have. But for years, we were giving agricultural subsidies to tobacco farmers because they tended to be um, you know locally owned family-owned farm businesses. We want to help them out, of course. But tobacco's evil, so we were charging a national tobacco tax. 
Uh, and and you, you look at that and go, well, couldn't you have just not done anything and more or less had the same yeah. the same effect, um, except that you know you wouldn't be taking from everybody not involved in the equation. And then where I live in New York here again, I think like I've got a plastic plant. I think I'm probably eligible for subsidies at this point uh, that I can get living in my <laughs> little apartment with no grass uh, by virtue of that. But to or same thing with dairy subsidies, right? We raise the price of milk and then we turn around and give people welfare because they can't afford food. Yeah. Well, right? that's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the bait and switch of, of agricultural subsidies, right? I mean, the idea is that um, I, I suppose it's twofold. One, that we want to try and maintain uh, food production in the United States because, you know, if some terrible war should break out with Mexico, we, we wouldn't be able to get our sugar from them, which is very unlikely. Uh, and then the other one is the idea that we need to make food affordable, and we're going to do that by subsidizing the farmers. But really all you're doing is just taking it out of the taxes that you're paying and giving it to the farmers. So it's not like the food actually costs any less to make. And what you end up doing is by subsidizing them, they overproduce, and then you often get, you know, like in the dairy industry, they overproduce, and you get all this, you know, the, the classic government cheese story, right? Where you've got all this cheese that they produce because the, the price is high, they can't sell it, government steps in and buys up the cheese, and then it rots in a warehouse. So not only have you raised prices to consumers, you've raised taxes on, on citizenry to pay for buying up this cheese, which is then rotting in a warehouse, right? So, you know, who wins here? The only winners are the, the concentrated beneficiaries of the of the farmers, the dairy farmers who sold it at the high price. Meanwhile, we've paid you know all these dispersed costs all through the economy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, like you know, I, I hail from an agricultural state. Uh, my family on my dad's side uh, are farmers actively, uh, and uh, the the way that the agricultural system is set up in our country, it's not per head. It's not that if you've got eight people in your family, you get ten thousand dollars in subsidies. I would note that I I would not think that that would be ethical anyway because. I'm a comedian, and I don't feel like I'm entitled to $10,000 for being a comedian, but um, the, the way the system is set up is it's based on how much acreage you have, which is to say that if I am a extremely wealthy guy living in Seattle that decides to buy a lot of Iowa that I never visit, I'm going to be getting a tremendous amount of money from the government as a result of that, whereas my family, which is not you know a huge farming family, they're going to be getting a very tiny proportional amount, and when you do that across the entire country for 50 years, what happens is it's now in my best interest as a very large businessman to buy out your small family farm. And it's probably in your best interest too. And, and so what you have is uh, a, a uh, decreasing uh, amount of local farmers. You have an increasing amount of very big agribusiness, which uh, I, I mention this because my liberal friends hate very big companies. And I, I think it's important to drive yep. home the fact that subsidies oftentimes make that happen. Yes, that's what we've been talking about in so many of these uh, uh, discussions, uh, the, the problems with crony capitalism. Uh, we haven't taught public choice theory here. Let me say one thing in addition to what Steve said. It's not just these big companies that benefit. It's the politicians themselves. Yep. If yep. they leave it to the market, they can't claim anything. But if they can subsidize one group uh, and prop up their prices and then give subsidies to another group to buy them, then they got all these people indebted to them who vote for them. Uh, they're always trying to create situations where their intervention looks good to some voting public. And so it's great if they have to undo the damage they've done. That's then two groups that are indebted to that. What they hate is the notion that all these good things can result without the government doing anything, and that's what the price system results in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're absolutely right about all that. Um, and I'll, I'll add, I, I think most congressmen, because um, I, I know a few and have worked with a few, I, I, I think that 
I, I don't think they're quite that sinister most of the time. Uh, but I think when you when you take these suspensions of supply and demand and you, you, you add in uh, um, you know subsidies and things like that, uh, it, it becomes untenable when you magnify it by 473 different competing legislative districts. Uh, because if we're all trying to take in more subsidies than we're putting out in terms of taxes, well, that seems beneficial to your tiny district. But when writ large, it puts us in a very, very bad position. Um, yep. Aside from you know market distortion, it creates debt and everything else bad. Yeah, I mean, that's what's what's the Bastiat quote that the, the 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 great fallacy of the state is that men can live by at the expense of other men or something. I can't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, right? But there it is, the idea that you know we can somehow we can get rich by redistributing all this stuff and live off live off each other. Well, you know, I think we've we've covered. I'm actually very very pleased with this podcast. We we've hit a huge amount of supply and demand stuff. I was kind of going dry on what to talk about. Uh, well, there's one there's one other scene in the movie that I sure, want to point yeah. to that that illustrates an interesting related topic. If you remember the scene where where the hula hoop first comes on the market, right, and and it, and we we cut to the toy store and the guy, you know, the, first we see we see the company figure out what the price is going right. to be, right? They show us the cost is like seventy nine cents, and then they're going to or eighty nine cents, and they're going to charge a dollar seventy nine. So it gets shipped off to the toy store, and the guy has it at a dollar seventy nine or whatever, and nobody's coming in. And then we see, you know, sort of in that that sort of you know forties fifty style movie, right? The price sticker goes over, and a, and the price keeps coming down. And at one point, the price goes really low, like 39 cents, and maybe he's trying to give one away for free. And at some point, the price that that guy's willing to charge for those hula hoops is less than their cost of production. And, you know, if you notice that, you might at first think, wow, that's a terrible, you know, that's bad business. But the reality is, he's already paid for those hula hoops. Those are what we in economics call sunk cost, right? He's paid for those hoops. Presumably, he can't return them. He can't get them back. He, you know, whatever price he gets for them now, he's happy with. So he'll sell them, quote unquote, below cost because essentially, once he's paid that, paid the manufacturer, right? That's gone. He can't get that back. The question is, how do I get rid? What what revenue can I make from these now? Then, of course, we see the great scene where the hoop rolls around the corner and 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 the fad is on, and then the the demand comes swarming back into the store, and he starts raising the price back up, right? As as all these kids start coming in to buy the hula hoops, and so it's a nice little illustration of supply and demand. But subtly in there is this idea of of, of that sometimes firms sell below cost. Because that's you know the, the the historical cost because that's irrelevant at that point. The question is they're taking up room in the store. I got to get rid of them, so I'll sell them for whatever I can. Yeah, it's just like what we saw in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, you'd rather have fifty cents on a dollar than yeah. nothing. Yes, yeah. you'd rather have thirty nine cents on the dollar seventy nine yeah. than nothing. Yep. Yep. And and to pay someone to take them away probably too right so it's even worse than that uh, absolutely and I'm, I'm, you've you've elucidated yet another economic concept for which I'm very grateful uh, and uh, we'll, we'll probably put in so I think we'll we'll finish up here in a moment um, two non-economic things that I just want to mention uh, I thought the film had a, a weird use of echoes I don't know if if, uh, if you noticed that but most of the scenes were echoey I I, I don't know why that was. I didn't. I did. I did notice, and because Paul has pointed this out in a previous film, I must mention it here too. Um, as much as I love Jennifer Jason Lee, she could not sustain that accent consistently <laughs> throughout the film, and it was driving me nuts. And it was a weird accent too. So I, when she started to speak, I just tried not to listen to it. I just looked at her, and I figured that was the way to go. I liked the accent, but then again, I, I, I mean, I can't, it was a Dame role, right? It was this sort of '40s right. Dame role. But she couldn't keep. I mean, when she had it, that voice on, it was great. 
but she could not keep it consistently. It was driving me bonkers. I, I, I guess I, I fell in love with her over the course of the film and it didn't didn't pick up on the inconsistencies. Although I Oh and I fell in love with her in nineteen eighty two in Fast Times in Ridgemont High, you know, us was she in that? Oh yeah. That uh, Oh yeah. Oh, yeah some she, of us which, she wasn't Phoebe. she wasn't Phoebe Cates, but she was in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I liked the I liked the 1940s you know buy war bonds war bonds buy steel and steel kills Germans like I like that like just really like flinty yeah. accent I, I don't know why that went away yeah, I know it was it was it was good she just couldn't she just couldn't be consistent well uh, I've I've got I've said my piece uh, I think we'll finish up do either of you have any any uh, final thoughts on supply and demand or Hudsucker's proxy well I'll just start by saying you said everybody agrees on supply and demand would that were true <laughs> I mean <laughs> straight here is here is probably the single most fundamental law of economics and Congress and intellectuals and everybody acts as if it could be abolished uh, as if oh yeah it's fine in most of the cases but in these 72 cases that we care about we're going to try to abolish the law of supply and demand we're going to have rent controls we're going to have price fixing we're going to have minimum wages and so on it really is as if we thought we could disregard the law of gravity right, uh, right. so yeah I, I would just echo that by saying you you the, the underlying economic reality is there and what happens when you try to pass these you know interventions in the price system is you just push the problems like trying to capture mercury right you push the problems out somewhere else you can't change the underlying reality all you can do by fighting it is make the consequences worse and I'll add this too that we look at supply and demand as if they were static and that's exactly what's wrong the greatness of the price system is it deals with the fact that supply is incredibly variable and demand is incredibly variable and it's the, the price system is there to adjust the one to the other uh, legislative efforts are always efforts to freeze something and they therefore ruin everything well points made across the board uh, I as per usual am smarter than before the podcast and I also will be much better and more eloquent at defending these concepts when I am at a cocktail party later so I thank you both gentlemen tremendously and we'll see you next time great to be here as usual take care this has been the econ pop podcast thanks for listening for more information about our show or to visit our archives go to econstories.tv to watch the econ pop web series go to youtube.com econstories It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.